Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts, Acts chapter 13. And we are continuing our series in Acts and looking at Paul's first missionary journey. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 13, uh, actually to 41. Uh, And I'll begin reading for us here in a moment in verse 13. If you're using one of the black Bibles that we provide uh, for you, you'll find our passage on page 921 and 922. So Acts chapter 13, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 13. This is God's Word. Now Paul and his companions set out from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Am I not he? No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us, has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he, was, he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 
Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. And uh, Lord, we thank You for the life and the example and the ministry of the Apostle Paul and how he demonstrates for us what it means to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus and to proclaim faithfully the Gospel to the nations. Lord, as we consider Your Word now, we pray that we would be reminded afresh of the good news of Jesus Christ. That we would trust and hope in Jesus and that our assurance and confidence of Your forgiveness and grace and mercy shown to us in Him would increase. And Lord, as a result, we pray that we would be faithful as the Apostle Paul to then share and proclaim this message to others. And it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. Well, sometimes it is good to pause for a moment and ask ourselves the question, why do we do what we do? So, for example, I just read about 30 verses of Scripture while you all sat silently and listened. And in the next few minutes, the rest of our time together essentially, we are going to then work back through this passage and I'm going to talk about this text and try to explain it so that we understand it better. We should pause for just a moment and acknowledge that in today's society, what we are doing in these next few moments is rather strange. For our current culture, the preferred form of communication is brief, attention-grabbing sound bites. Actually, I've recently been fascinated by the short videos on YouTube. Maybe some of you enjoy watching those. YouTube shorts were introduced to the U.S. in March of 2021 and have grown in popularity. They are videos that are online on YouTube that are no longer than 60 seconds. The average shorts video falls between 20 to 40 seconds. Shorts videos have grown in such popularity that they receive 6.5 billion views every single day. And they are extremely accessible. You just scroll and scroll and scroll until you find one. You watch it. It lasts, what, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Then you watch the next one, the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And you can see how addictive they can become. Yet in a YouTube shorts world, here we are this morning reading an ancient text that was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, listening to someone explain it 
as we wrestle with its structure, how it's laid out, its meaning, and as we seek to discern its implications for our own lives. Why do we do this? Well, my friends, we do this because as Christians, we believe that God has revealed Himself. That God has revealed Himself specifically in His Word. And if God has spoken to us, then there is nothing more important, there is nothing more vital, there is nothing more essential that we listen and that we understand what He has said to us. But that's not the only thing we know about God's Word. Not only does God's Word reveal to us knowledge about who God is, God's Word also tells us that His Word possesses power. So that by His Word, He not only reveals who He is, but by His Word, He creates and He sustains His people. In fact, in response to this sermon that Paul preaches here in our text, we read later on in Acts chapter 13, verses 48 and 49, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. You see, the word of God not only reveals knowledge of God, but the word of God possesses power so that it creates the church as the word of God is proclaimed. People believe and come to faith in Christ, and then that word spreads, it multiplies as the church continues to grow and God's kingdom continues to expand. Martin Lloyd-Jones once declared, quote, I would say without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need of the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also, end of quote. In fact, that need for true preaching is so critical and so monumental that many can testify that when they first heard true preaching, it transformed their lives forever. There are many here in this room this morning that can bear witness to that truth. And what Martin Lloyd-Jones means in this statement by true preaching is what is also known as expositional preaching. That is, preaching that exposes the text of Scripture. It is preaching that's not driven by the preacher's personality, or the preacher's own personal opinions, or a political agenda, or the current events of the day. But rather, it's preaching that sets as its primary goal that the meaning of the passage of the Scripture that is being read and considered then becomes the meaning and the main point of the sermon itself. Let me say that again. The primary goal of expositional preaching is that the main point of the passage of Scripture that is being read and considered then becomes the main point of the sermon. You see, in true preaching, the preacher's aim in many ways is to get out of the way. To hide themselves behind the text. And to allow God to speak to His people. And when that happens, when God speaks to His people through His Word, it's not only a relaying of knowledge, but it is an encounter with the living God. 
So that when God speaks to His people through His Word, His people encounter God Himself. What we see in our text this morning is that Paul proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. Paul models for us this morning this proclamation of Christ from the Word of God. And we know that Paul would have had many opportunities to preach Christ on his missionary journeys, but what makes it unique here in Acts chapter 13 is that Luke tells us, Luke is the man who wrote the book of Acts, Luke tells us here not only did Paul proclaim Christ, but Luke actually takes the time to record for us for the first time Paul's sermon. So this is the first record that we have of one of Paul's sermons. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want to spend a little bit of time just speaking about the setting here, what's taking place here in the passage in terms of just setting up what's happening. And then I want us to look at this sermon uh, in particular. And as we look at the sermon, we'll see that it's divided up into three parts, and we'll look at each of those three parts. Then in the coming weeks, Lord willing, we will consider Paul's listeners' response to this sermon. So first of all, the setting, okay? The setting. Look there in verses 13 through 15. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for us, say it. Now I said last week when we were looking at um, the first location where Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journey here in Acts 13. I said last week that when we consider Paul's missionary journeys, it's helpful to ask the questions, who and where. Now, I'm going to ask one question to that this week. I want us, as we look at these verses here, to ask the question, who, where, and whom? So first of all, who? Now, notice here in our text that the who is Paul. Paul is the one who proclaims Jesus in the synagogue. You see it there in verse 16. And I don't want us to move beyond this section of Scripture without pointing out that a couple of significant things are happening in Paul's life at this time. We see that at the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, there are two significant transitions that actually point to the direction that Paul's life will go in from this point forward. The first is a name transition. There's a name transition that takes place in Paul's life. So Paul is first mentioned to us in Acts chapter 7. And there Paul's name is Saul. Then in Acts chapter 9, Paul is converted. And we hear of Paul again. So he's converted in 9. And then we hear of him again in Acts chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13. But it's not until chapter 13 verse 9 that we hear him first referred to as Paul. You see it there in verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, we know, was a Jew, and he was from Tarsus. And so that means he was a Jew who lived among Gentiles, among Greeks. And it wasn't uncommon for a Jew who lived among Greeks to have at least a couple of names. One, a a Jewish name, and then two, a Greek name. So Saul was Paul's Jewish name, and Paul was his Greek name. 
And what we see here is that now as Paul is setting out on this missionary journey to become a missionary to the Gentiles, from this point forward, he will be referred to almost exclusively as Paul by his Greek name. The second transition, though, that takes place in Paul's life here is a transition in leadership. Back in Acts chapter 11, we are told that Barnabas took initiative and went looking for Paul so that he could bring him back to the church in Antioch and they could teach the church. And then we see this couple together, of uh, Paul and Barnabas, we see them together in Acts chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13. They're mentioned together four times, and each time we read Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. So they're paired together, they're obviously missionary companions, but with Barnabas' name being listed first, it also seems apparent that Barnabas is the leader among the two. But then something happens in chapter 13, verse 43, a change occurs. We read in chapter 13, verse 43, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Now it flips. Paul's name is mentioned first. And that happens then repeatedly through the rest of the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. So it's been since Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9... And now in Acts chapter 13, he goes out on his first missionary journey. It's been 14 years. And in those 14 years, Paul has faithfully waited on the Lord. He's faithfully ministered in Jesus' name. But in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was converted, the Lord spoke a prophetic word over Paul's life. In reference to Paul, the Lord said, He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And now God, as Paul has been waiting, as Paul has been faithfully ministering for these 14 years, now God is fulfilling this prophetic word in Paul's life. And we see this. It's it's noted through these two transitions. The transition in his name, the transition in his position of leadership, that Paul now is stepping into this reality of becoming a missionary to the Gentiles for which God had called him. So that's the who. It's the Apostle Paul who is proclaiming the Word of God as he embarks on being a missionary to the Gentiles. Now, the where. Well, last week we left Paul and Barnabas in the city of Paphos on the island of Cyprus. And Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea just south of modern-day Turkey. And Then in uh, chapter 13, verse 13, we're told that they sailed north to Pergma in Pamphylia. Now, Perga in Pamphylia is modern day at southern Turkey, all right? So they go north to Perga, but then when they arrive in Perga, they go further north, the text says, to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, one distinction we need to recognize here is that the Antioch in Pisidia that's mentioned here is different than the Antioch in chapter 13, verse 1, the church in Antioch, from which Paul and Barnabas were sent out. That's Antioch in Syria. So Antioch was actually a very popular name for a city in Paul's day. I actually recently read that the name that is most common for U.S. cities or towns is Washington. 
All right, something like 88 cities or towns in the U.S. are named Washington. Makes sense because of George Washington, right? Well, Antioch was a popular name for a city in Paul's day. And so they were sent out from Antioch in Syria, but now they find themselves in Antioch and Pisidia. Now, what Luke does not share here, though, is how difficult this journey from Perga up to Antioch would have been. It was actually a journey of about a hundred miles. And not only was it a journey of a hundred miles, but in order to make that journey from Perga up to Antioch, they would have had to go through the Taurus Mountains. In fact, Antioch itself sat 3,600 feet above sea level. So it was a mountainous city. Now, why is that significant? If you remember last week, we said that when Paul and Barnabas arrived in the island of Cyprus, it was a reminder of the Old Testament prophecies that one day the islands would come to know God and to worship Him, right? There are also similar prophecies in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2 specifically, that there was coming a day when the people of the hills and of the mountains would recognize Jerusalem as the dwelling place of the Lord. And as Paul and Barnabas go to the mountainous city of Antioch in Pisidia, it is a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. As the Gentiles now come, the nations, the peoples of the hills and the mountains will come to faith in Christ and worship the Lord. So that's the where. It's in Antioch of Pisidia. And then the whom. The whom. To whom was Paul preaching? Well, we see here in the text that Paul was preaching to Jews and what's also known as God-fearers, Gentiles who had begun to read and understand the Old Testament Scriptures and to fear the God of the Bible. You see they're assembled in the local synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. Look there in chapter 13, verse 14. And on Sabbath, on the Sabbath, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And we know that this was Paul's normal practice on his missionary journeys. He would go to a city, he would go to a town, and the first place he would go would be to the synagogue. Of course, this was a strategic move because Paul himself was a trained Jewish rabbi and would have oftentimes been given the opportunity to speak because of his training. And it was also strategic because those who were gathered there were Jews who knew and read the Old Testament Scriptures and were waiting for the coming Messiah. And so by way of summary, the who is Paul. It's Paul who's proclaiming the gospel. The where is in the mountainous city of Antioch of Pisidia. And the whom are the Jews who are gathered together for worship in the synagogue. So that's the setting. Now, let's consider the sermon itself. The sermon is found in the rest of the text here that I read earlier. And although Paul probably did not provide his audience that morning, or that day, with um, a three-point outline or a four-point outline like I normally do for you, actually when you read the sermon, it actually falls nicely into three divisions. And the divisions of Paul's sermons here are marked by three separate direct addresses. So notice this in the text. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 we read, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. 
So he addresses them directly in verse 16. This marks off the first section of the sermon. Then go to verse 26. Again, he addresses them directly. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. This marks off the second section of his sermon. And then the final address in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. He addresses them directly, marking off the third section of the sermon. And so based on these three division markers, I've divided Paul's sermon into these three points. First, Jesus, the promised seed. Secondly, Jesus and the message of salvation. And third, Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. So look there at verses 16 to 25 and we see Jesus, the promised seed. Look there at verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their, inherit, their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Am I not he? No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, scholars tell us that the typical service in a synagogue would have included initially the recital of the Shema. So they would have begun the service by reciting the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Then there would have been some prayers. Then there would have been a reading from one of the books of the Old Testament law. Then there would have been a reading from one of the books of the Old Testament prophets. Then there would have been a sermon likely based on one of the readings from the law or the prophets. And then finally, a blessing. So notice this. Look at verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, that is to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So likely what happened was that a reading took place from the law, A reading took place from the prophets. Some, based on what Paul says here, some believe that maybe 2 Samuel 7 was one of the readings because it's God's covenant with David. And then after the readings occurred, they knew that Paul was a trained rabbi and they said, Nepal, would you like to say something based on the readings? Would you like to preach? Would you like to speak based on one of the readings of the prophets or the law? And so notice, Paul stands, and as he begins to preach, Paul emphasizes God's mercy and faithfulness to the people of Israel in verses 17 to 23. You see there that in these verses, God is the subject of almost every single clause. 
Verse 17, God chose our fathers. God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. Verse 18, God put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 19, God destroyed seven nations in Canaan. God gave them their land as an inheritance. Verse 20, God gave them judges. Verse 21, He gave them a king in Saul. He also removed Saul in verse 22 and raised up David to be their king. In other words, what Paul is saying to them is God has done all these things on your behalf. What Paul is saying is that God had chosen them. God had made them a great people. God had delivered them from their enemies. God had blessed them with land. God had blessed them with leaders. But now... Now, God was fulfilling the greatest promise He had ever made to them. You see it there in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, that is David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. In other words, as God has cared for you throughout all these years and throughout all these generations, as He's taken initiative and moved towards you in love, Now He has demonstrated His greatest act of love on your behalf. He has sent the promised Messiah, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 24 and 25, we see that this event, the coming of the Lord Jesus, was of such magnitude, of such consequence, that John the Baptist's entire ministry was devoted to preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. In verse 25, John declares, Behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie, because he is, in fact, the deliverer of Israel. Now, one of the things we see here right away, off the bat, from Paul's preaching, is that Paul preaches Christ. And Paul's preaching here actually reminds us of the Lord Jesus Himself. This is very interesting. Luke, as I mentioned earlier, wrote the book of Acts. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke, an account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. When well, Luke chapter 4, Luke provides us with Jesus' first recorded sermon. It also took place in a synagogue. It took place in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus stood up in the synagogue, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4, and He read from the book of Isaiah. Jesus read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke records that as Jesus read those prophetic words regarding the Messiah from the prophet Isaiah, that the people listened quietly and they looked at Him intently. And we can imagine that there was this moment of silence. And then Jesus declared these words, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus was saying to the people gathered in that synagogue in Nazareth, I am the coming servant of the Lord. Everything I've just read in Isaiah is fulfilled in me. 
So when Jesus had the opportunity to speak, when Jesus had the opportunity to preach in the synagogue, what did he do? He preached Jesus from the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus proclaimed Jesus from the Old Testament Scriptures. He pointed, he showed how the Old Testament prophecies pointed to himself as the Spirit-filled, anointed one and great deliverer of Israel. But then, not only does Luke record Jesus's, or, or provide us with the first recorded sermon of Jesus, Luke also provides us with Peter's first recorded sermon. So in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and Luke records the sermon. And what does Peter do? Well, after citing three Old Testament passages of Scripture, Peter declares in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, when Peter had the opportunity to speak, when Peter had the opportunity to preach, he proclaimed Christ from the Scriptures. And now in Acts chapter 13, Luke provides us with Paul's first recorded sermon. And what does Paul do? We've already seen it. He proclaims Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. So we see this pattern. Jesus, Peter, Paul, they preach the Word of God. And in particular, they proclaim Christ from the Scriptures. And of course, my friends, this is what should be happening every Sunday in every pulpit as the church of God is gathered. Every time we gather together to worship the Lord, the Word of God should be proclaimed. And in that proclamation, Christ should be declared as Savior and Lord. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is one of my spiritual heroes, and uh, he was a Baptist minister in the 19th century. He ministered in London, England, and at one point in his ministry, he began to preach in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was a magnificent building that could seat thousands of attendees. And in March of 1861, Charles Spurgeon preached his first sermon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And in his first sermon, Spurgeon followed the example of Jesus and Peter and Paul. This is what he said, quote, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. If I am asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity to which I would pen and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not any human treatise, but Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life, end of quote. And my friends, by the grace and the mercy of God, may that be true of this house, and of this platform, and of this pulpit, and of this church, 
now and forever. We proclaim Christ. Secondly, we see in Paul's sermon, the second point of his sermon is Jesus and the message of salvation. Jesus and the message of salvation. Look there in verses 26 to 37. Verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And now he's going to tell us what this salvation is. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption." Now, one of the things that's vital for us to see here is that Paul, in one sense, does not just preach Jesus. And what I mean by that is that Paul gives particular attention. He places special emphasis on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You see there in verses 27 and 28, Paul points out that tragically, Jesus' own people, the Jews, rejected him, which resulted in his death. Look there again at these verses. For those who live in Jerusalem, verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him crucified. You know, in Luke's gospel, actually in Luke chapter 23, Luke records three times that as Jesus was brought before Pilate, Pilate declared, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And yet, the people who were assembled that day in Jerusalem insisted, crucify him. Crucify him. And Paul is pointing out here that those people are the same people who would have heard the prophecies of the Messiah read in the synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. And yet the irony, the tragedy, is that these folks, unwittingly, but willingly and rebelliously, fulfilled those prophecies by crucifying the Lord Jesus. You see there in verse 29 that Paul speaks of both Jesus' death and His burial. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. And notice the specific way that Paul speaks there of Jesus' death. He doesn't speak of the cross. He actually uses the word tree, right? When they took Him down from the tree. And that's significant. Because in the Old Testament... 
If one committed a capital offense, they would be executed, and then according to the instructions of Deuteronomy, they were, their body would be hung out on a tree, which was a symbol of God's curse and surely a warning to God's people. And so when Paul looks at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he, he, it brings to mind this instruction of the Lord from Deuteronomy. And what Paul thinks is, this is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus and in His crucifixion on the cross. In fact, Paul ties these things together specifically in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This would have been astonishing for those Jews who were gathered there in the synagogue. Paul is saying, he's drawing these two things together. He's saying, this Messiah, this Messiah that I'm declaring to you, that I'm proclaiming to you, that I'm saying is come. He was cursed. The Messiah of God was cursed, hung on a tree, crucified. And why? Because so that we who deserve the curse of God might be spared from that curse and instead receive the blessing of God through faith in Him. Then like so many of the other apostles that we see so many other places in the New Testament, Paul places special emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. You see it there in verse 30. But God raised Him from the dead. And then in verse 30 to 37, which takes up the majority of Paul's sermon, Paul cites three Old Testament texts demonstrating that Jesus' resurrection from the dead fulfills these three texts. You see the first one in verse 33. He cites Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. God had promised that one of David's sons would rule and reign on his throne forever. And the Messiah, this would be the Messiah. The Messiah would be one of David's sons. And what Paul is saying here is that in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 indicates not only is the Messiah David's son, but the Messiah would be in the truest and the fullest sense the Son of God. And that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is affirmation, confirmation that Jesus Himself is not just the Son of David, but He is in fact the Son of God who will rule and reign on David's throne over all the nations and the ends of the earth. The second passage that Paul cites here is in verse 34. It's Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. We know that after David's death, David's, his rule and reign was kind of the pinnacle of Israel's experience as a nation in the Old Testament. But after his death, the people of Israel suffered many years under wicked kings and under the oppression of foreign nations. In fact, they suffered so much that many of them began to doubt, even stop believing the promises of God. Many years after David's death, God reassured His people, though, that He had not forsaken His promises. 
Through the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah declared, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. In other words, God is saying to his people, I've not forgotten you. I've not forgotten my promise to you. And here, Paul is declaring that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the declaration that God is and will pour out the blessings of David upon his people. That he has been faithful to his promise in Christ. The third citation is found in verse 35, and it's from Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And this is interesting because Peter actually cites this passage in Acts 2 when he preaches his sermon at Pentecost. And Paul here makes the same point that Peter made in Acts chapter 2. David is the author of this psalm. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. But Peter and and Paul here make the point that that psalm is not ultimately fulfilled in David because David did die and his body did decay and his body did see corruption. But ultimately that psalm is fulfilled in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when God raised him from the dead, never to know the decay and corruption of his body in that way. By the resurrection of Jesus, the point again is, Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Savior of Israel, the Messiah. So here we see, as we walk through these verses, that as Paul proclaimed Christ, it wasn't just that he proclaimed Christ, it was that Paul gave special emphasis, special attention to the death the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it is in His death, it is in His resurrection that His redemptive work is accomplished. And my friends, there are many places you can go today and they will in one sense preach Christ. They may talk about Christ's teachings or His moral example and that's all well and good and we should do that. But His redemptive work, we must always remember, is at the heart of the gospel. And therefore, to truly preach Christ is to preach a bloody and crucified Savior who gave Himself to atone for the sins of His people. And to truly preach Christ is to preach a living, resurrected Savior who was raised from the dead bodily and physically. It is in this work of redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished that we have our hope. This is what it meant for the Apostle Paul to proclaim Christ. Third, Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. The final point, third and final point in Paul's sermon. Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Look there in verse 38 to 41. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So notice here in verse 40, I'm sorry, in verse 38, That Paul here declares the great hope that is ours through the life, burial, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is the forgiveness of sins. You see it there in verse 38. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And how can you and I receive the forgiveness of sins? Paul makes it clear here, it's not enough just for us to know that Jesus lived and that he died and that he was raised. You may acknowledge that as an historical event. No, we must believe it. You see it there in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, if you are to receive the benefit of the forgiveness of sins, you must acknowledge that your efforts to keep God's law, your efforts to keep the law of Moses, your efforts to do all that you know that is good and right and pleasing in the eyes of God, those efforts ultimately have failed. You have not met even your own measure or standard of morality and goodness and righteousness. But by the grace of God, you have heard the good news that in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And if you will forsake all your efforts to make yourself right before God by your own good deeds, by your own good works, by your own good intentions, and believe and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you will be forgiven and you will be saved. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't pray enough. You can't attend church services enough. You can't do any of those things enough in order to make yourself right with God. And that's why Jesus Christ was crucified and raised so that you might be forgiven and know God through Him. Understand as well, my friends, that this is not just a message for non-Christians, for those who have yet to trust in Christ and who need to place their faith in Jesus. This is a message for Christians as well. We already noted that Antioch was a city in the region of Pisidia. But Pisidia was part of a larger Roman province known as Galatia. Now, does that ring any bells for some of you? Galatia. Where have we heard Galatia before? Well, Paul would in coming years write a letter to the Galatians. It's another book in the Bible that we find in the New Testament. And so this city here, Antioch, and the cities that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks was in the region of Galatia. And Paul would later write to the Galatians. And what was it when Paul wrote to the Galatians that so burdened him? What was he so dismayed by? He wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, what Paul is saying is when I was with you, when I was with you in the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia, I preached Christ crucified to you. I publicly betrayed before you in my words Christ and Him crucified and the significance of His death on the cross and that through faith in Him you could be freed from your sin and condemnation. And yet just a few years later, they had begun to doubt the true gospel. They had begun to trust in their own works and merit and gone back to the law of Moses and were trying to be made right before God by following the law of Moses. And so 
Paul had to write them again and warn them and exhort them and remind them of the gospel. It's the reason why Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, warns us of becoming merit mongers. Trusting in our own merits and good works, hoarding them to ourselves and saying, God, look, see what I've done? Surely now you must accept me. Rather than trusting in Christ and His perfect work of redemption. And that's why it's essential as Christians that we gather and we hear and we receive and we rejoice in the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified over and over and over again. So that we grow in the appreciation of what Christ has done for us and we grow in our confidence and assurance of the forgiveness of sins and God's great love for us in Christ. But notice, and this is the final thing, just a moment here. Paul does not actually conclude his sermon here. Paul offers the forgiveness of sins. He proclaims the promise of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus, but that's not actually where he finally concludes. Rather, Paul concludes with a warning. You see it there in verse 40. Beware. And then Paul cites the prophet Habakkuk. From Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. Look you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You see, in Habakkuk's day, Habakkuk is warning the people of God that the Babylonians, a wicked nation, that God is going to raise them up And he is going to use them as his arm of judgment upon the people of God for their rebellion and for their sin. And here's Paul's point. This is why he pulls back from Habakkuk and cites Habakkuk the prophet. Paul is saying to those who were gathered in the synagogue that morning, if God so judged the people in Habakkuk's day because they refused to listen to the words of the prophet and believe and obey, how much more severely will He judge us if we reject His Son, the Lord Jesus, and His Gospel? Paul is essentially saying to those who are gathered in the synagogue that morning, don't be like the residents and the rulers of Jerusalem in Jesus' day who heard in the synagogue Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath the promises and the prophecies of the Messiah and yet crucified Him. And what a warning to each of us this morning. How many of us this morning have heard Sunday after Sunday after Sunday the words of God and the prophecies of the Messiah and the fulfillment and reality in Jesus Christ? If you are not yet a Christian this morning, my friends, do not delay. Do not put it off. You have heard this morning the gospel of Jesus Christ. The proclamation and reality of who Jesus is and the work He has done for your redemption. Turn from your sins and trust in Him. Know the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for the great redemption that You have accomplished in Your Son, Jesus. Lord, we thank You for the Scriptures that for centuries testified 
to the coming redemption and salvation that you would work, that you would accomplish in your promised son. And then, Lord, we thank you for how we see in the scriptures that reality fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to receive this message by faith. And may we rejoice in your great mercy and grace. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.